everybody. Welcome to the Tuesday Toolbox Meeting of Adult Children of Alcoholics in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. My name is Anne. I'm a Tuesday Toolbox member and an adult child. We're recording our speakers every week because we're hoping others will benefit from hearing these stories from our members. We'd love to hear your comments and questions. Our email address is TuesdayToolboxACA at gmail.com. Also, whether you're listening to SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, please take a minute to rate our podcast. It will help others find it. Adult Children of Alcoholics is a 12-step program of recovery for people who grew up in an alcoholic or otherwise dysfunctional home. If you'd like to find a meeting in your area, go to adultchildren.org and click on Find a Meeting. This week, we're hearing from our friend Dana, who talks about returning to ACA after a long break. Please enjoy. Hi, my name's Dana, adult child. Uh, I'm actually uh, new to this fellowship, but not really. The first meeting that I went to was in 1996 or 1996. And I stayed for two years and, and then got, uh, I'd seen the light and I left. And um, I'm very grateful for that slip because um, uh, I'd heard in, that, in, that in England they call slips convincers. And uh, I came here totally convinced that this is where I need to remain, uh, probably for the duration of my willingness to be in 12-step recovery. Uh, my first meeting was in 1991. In the spring of 1991, it was, a it was an AA meeting, and I haven't found it necessary to drink or use drugs since then. So I, I'll be 28 years sober, and I've been in every fellowship in the program, I mean, uh, in New York, basically, um, with the exception of maybe one or two. Um, uh, so I'm hella informed, and self-knowledge hasn't availed me a thing. This is actually the first fellowship where I've willingly embraced the steps. When I came in in 1996, uh, we didn't have steps. We had mimeograph sheets. I guess it wasn't mimeograph, it wasn't that long ago. They were typewritten and, and, and Xeroxed. And we read um, the ACOA Bill of Rights. And then in round robin fashion, we just let it rip and heard so much uh, in-depth personal things about one another uh, without commentary uh, and without a solution really, but it was really deeply healing to know that I was not alone. It was the most profound experience of fellowship that I had had up to that point. I knew I was home. In fact, the very first uh, recovery book I ever read was Adult Children of Alcoholic. Alcoholics by Janet Wanson, I think her, I can't pronounce her last name, Janet W. And uh, promptly uh, started drinking again until I bottomed out and came in. And so because this, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the steps are my solution and they, they're the way I break open my resistance, uh, and because I'm still really new to this fellowship and I'm just embarking you know, I'm in two fellow travelers groups and we're going through the yellow book. Um, I want to talk about 
what the book calls that sold wound, which brings about a surrender and a bottom. And um, it's odd to me, but absolutely understandable that I didn't see how necessary it was for me to do this work. Um, but it's really in keeping with where I come from. Uh, that self-sufficiency and the fear of people that kept me out of the solution. Um, the book says that um, ACA recovery begins when the adult child gives up, asks for help, and then accepts the help offered. So I could see it. You know, I, I'd, I'd, been, I'd been told that uh, the awakening is in three steps, you know. Awareness, acceptance, action. And my experience was it was awareness, agony, acceptance, action. And uh, I wavered between total acceptance and therefore I was inactive when it came to doing the work that's required to feel peace here. It didn't really exist though. There, were, there, were, there was no big red book in 1996 here in New York, not that I'd seen. And there certainly weren't huge group, groupings of people willingly coming from all over. I mean, this is a very diverse group of people and um, it's really beautiful. It was, uh, it was inspiring. Every meeting that I've walked into is absolutely huge and that's amazing for me. It encourages me. It was very easy to find a few people to sit with and go over the yellow book. It's, in fact, we had to split off into two groups because it was just, we wouldn't have, you know, gotten everything done in the time period that folks want to allot this kind of work to. And that was not my experience then. You would walk out and walk away and be alone. It was comforting because it was just like it was in my home, but it wasn't really helpful. So it says that um, hitting a bottom can occur before the adult child attends his first meeting and it can occur after arriving here and beginning the 12 steps recovery, which is what happened for me when I came in. I was maybe six years in. Um, some ACA members reach bottom after years in recovery, and that's absolutely me right this moment. Um, some, it says some ACA bottoms can be a chronic sense of aloneness in which the adult child never feels joy and never really connects with others in a meaningful manner. So although my program relationships were really um, life-sustaining, and I've done amazing things. Like I learned how to ski in recovery. I learned how to pitch a tent. I know how to build a fire. I've been in fires by the river, bonfires, and shared my heart out with other people. I've witnessed so many folks. I've heard people's stories. I am still terrified of others and bewildered because my core relationships have never really been core. Um, there have been a, a lot of transactional friendships and situationships that I thought were relationships, but not the kind of intimacy that I crave and not a sense of peace that I want. 
but it could be because when I was in ACOA, the ACA uh, back then, I didn't know that I was adopted. I didn't find out until uh, 1999, a year after I'd left the fellowship, I found out that I'm um, an in-family adoption. I didn't find out until 20 years ago. So, um, but I did discover in 1991, the soul wound does not get better with pills, drugs, sex, or other <laughs> forms of diversion. I'd heard that I could use any kind of addictive behaviors to um, distract myself from the central problem, which is an overwhelming sense of separate apartness. Um, it doesn't matter who's telling me I'm not. It doesn't matter what I do for a living. Mean, I had an amazing uh, outward life. I, you know, I, I've written a book. I had an album, I've traveled the world, literally, a few times, played some of New York's greatest concert halls, I'm actually a writer, uh, but I was there in Carnegie, you know, like, these amazing uh, friendships and um, acquaintances, acquaintanceships. But at the core, there is that wound. It's an essential wound. And even though I had been told the true identity of my mother and she'd been raised with me, I was also told by my mother's a lesbian and her lover was one of my mothers. I had several mothers and her lover uh, was the one who broke the news, listen, because I was going to hire a lawyer because I'd seen discrepancies in my, um, in my um, birth certificate. And... Um, her lover broke their silence. She broke the code of silence that was in the family. And because I was going to go on this round the world tour, I got all this money. And I was like, I got to figure this out before because this is very irregular. And she said, save your money. Doris is your mother. Then I went on tour. So, you know, there's clear dysfunction. My mother had me. Uh, she was cheating on her girlfriend when she conceived me. Sex addiction is part of her story, infidelity, and a feeling of separate apartness. She was a child prodigy. When she was 15, she was accepted at a very esteemed Ivy League school in New England, and she chose not to go because she felt too dark, too poor, and too uh, outside. So she decided to take the easier, softer way and stay in New York, and she basically drank all through the West Village. So. Um, she's only spoken to me about giving me up once. She told me that she and her sister had made a pact that she would go to term, that she would come back from California and deliver the child, and that my aunt, who was then married and straight, would adopt me without any of the other family members' knowledge, and then life would go on as usual. What she did instead was come when she was closer to term. She didn't tell her sister she was here. She went to the Bronx, she gave birth to me, and the moment that I was born, when she felt strong enough, when I was hours old, she left the hospital and had a nervous breakdown and went into a mental institution. It took her brother and sister a year to find me. Wow. 
So I was in a family, uh, a foundling home for the first year of my life. I assume, I'm not quite sure. And then her sister and her sister's husband adopted me. And I'd always thought they were my mother and father. And he was a, 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 a drunk. He was charismatic and handsome and was daddy and always loved me and didn't hurt me, but they had a violent relationship. And of course, it ended because of not only his alcoholism, but hers as well. And then I was raised by a single mother who was very angry and violent. And I understand now that she too couldn't, you know, she was also kind of bereft because she couldn't have children. So I was very much uh, a product of dysfunction and it had left, I guess there's a real reason why I'm sort of terrified of others because my closest relationships have, in, have, have, have involved so much betrayal. Um, the book talks about recovery from the effects of an alcoholic and dysfunctional upbringing as being a process, not an event. That has been my experience. I thought that when I came the first time, before I even knew that I was adopted <laughs> consciously, I always knew subconsciously and there were, there were clues. I'd get, when I was drinking, my, my ex-fiancés, I had two of them, told me that I would say, I'd make mention of maybe there's something going on with my dad, maybe he was the milkman or whatever. I knew there was something wrong. Uh, Pre-verbally, you know, all things. But recovering from that is the journey that I'm on right now. Putting language to it. Understanding why I am so afraid of you. If you come too near, why I backpedal. And why all of my intimate relationships, the sexual ones, were so filled with drama and uh, fear, suspicion, and tons of intrigue. I have come to understand from work in other fellowships that I was not able to identify what actually is love. Mm -hmm. I was attracted to excitement, as it says in our literature. And uh, for the first I'd say 12 years of my recovery, maybe even more. It was all about he did this, he did that, he did the other thing, and his name was Legion. But then it took a while for me to understand that the one threat, the, the, the common denominator was me. I was picking these people, and one of the most profound things that I heard, and I say it all the time, so forgive me if I say it again, but it's really just like a a lightning rod for me, is that it's not that these people are crazy, it's that we give them our phone numbers. <laughs> what is it in me that my entire recovery in this area has been this quest to understand? What is it in me that seeks that thing which would keep me separate and apart ultimately from other people? It's kind of what drove me back in here because I could no longer act out in that area. 
And I knew, because of my work in 12-step recovery in AA, that all of it, one of the things I heard early on in my recovery is if it's hysterical, it's historical. And I made light of that. But in the years that I've been sober and working with others, listening to other people's fifth steps, doing the work myself, many, many fourth steps, lots of soul searching, meditation, retreats, the Karen Foundation, a codependency rehab, five-day five codependency rehab, game-changing. I understood that there's a deeper issue, and it's a, an historical issue, that you just don't graduate from here. It's not a quick fix. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Um, one of the things I learned at Karen, it's uh, shocking that I found it in here. I, you know, I, I'm going to end with this. Um, before I got sober, I had a three-part intake at a psychiatric, with a psychiatric social worker in a um, clinic. And he asked me about my drinking, and I told him, and he said, you, have you ever tried AA? And I said, not really. And he said, you know, my wife's in AA. And I said, I feel bad for her. And he said... Contempt prior to investigation is the worst form of ignorance. It is a paraphrase of this quote that was attributed to William James, but uh, it was given to me, uh, this, it's on the cover of this recovery uh, uh, book cover. Uh, it's probably not William James, which is why it's not <laughs> cited. But the, the quote is, there's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a ma woman uh, in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. I'd had contempt for this fellowship because I found it wanting, lacking. It didn't have the structure that I was accustomed to in AA. And I kind of left before the miracle but I'm kind of happy that I did. I left so that I could come here thoroughly convinced that my freedom from the bondage of self is going to come when I have the bravery to go deeper than I ever have. And I have to do that in the company of others, which is the scariest thing for me, to be in the company of others while I mine material which is the scariest thing that I've ever attempted to do in ways that are unfamiliar to me. Open and brave. Thanks.